0: welcome to Mojo for the Modern Man. This is your host, Ken Mossman, and today I am delighted to be joined by Travis Stock. Travis Stock is an amazing gentleman. There is so much to this man, and I won't go into all that right now because I want to get you into the conversation here quickly. Here's how Act One shakes out. The child of a dental assistant and construction worker who were high school sweethearts Travis grew up in Tucson, Arizona, where his family were members of a United Methodist church that was a reconciling congregation. And in this congregation, it was not unusual to see same-sex ceremonies, and this is well before the Marriage Equality Act, by the way. And even with that level of community acceptance of LGBTQ people, Travis reflects on his own experiences of feeling different and separate, pouring himself into perfectionistic pursuits of music and studies as as places to hide. And, And this is a story of both hiding and seeking. And finally, here toward the end of Act One, beginning to come to terms with his true self, through the well-timed help of one of his professors and the courageous work he and his family did individually and collectively. It is cool stuff and difficult at times. Quick reminder, if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to Mojo for the Modern Man on your favorite podcasting service, and let's jump into this rich conversation with Travis Stock. Enjoy. Gravis Stock, it's a pleasure to welcome you and and to be transparent, to welcome you back to Mojo for the Modern Man. It's a delight to have you
1: here. Hey, thanks. Anytime that I get to have another conversation with you, Ken, is great with me, so
0: I'm not bothered by it. (laughs) Likewise. There's there's a story behind this, but we're not going to let on. Um, Yeah, right. Exactly. So what was it like growing up in your part of the world? Well, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona,
1: um, so I grew up in the desert the boy that now lives in Seattle, Washington. It's a huge transition from dry deserts to this wet climate. Um, And I'm five years into being here and I'm still not used to it. But I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. I grew up in a uh, sort of like the traditional family of four. I have one older brother. And uh, yeah, I grew up. um, I think something that's really important in my own journey and story is just being a Gay man in this world, and I had some interesting experiences as a as a child of being in community with people from the LGBTq community. Um, I was raised in a um, United Methodist Church, which was a reconciling congregation, and so the ministers were performing commitment ceremonies for gays and lesbians and there there was a whole community at the church that I grew up in. Such an interesting thing that I never really connected to it and felt like that was me. It still felt like something separate from me and something different. I feel really grateful that I got that experience. I wish I could kind of go back and actually. Feel the safety of being raised in that kind of community instead of looking at it as something separate or something that I had to avoid. Um, Yeah, I grew up with uh, parents who. uh, My mom was a dental assistant working for the same dentist for most of my life, and my dad works in construction or had worked worked in construction for the same company. For most of my life as well they've now moved on to different things but i grew up with parents that are high school sweethearts they met i think when my mom was 14. wow um so they they demonstrated a level of commitment they committed to each other at a really young age and then they committed to careers and and places of employment at, at young ages and stuck with it for over 30 years and so um my parents demonstrated a, a level of commitment to my brother and i that is huge um, and also provided an interesting counterbalance to what my brother and my life is now. Like, neither of us is married, and we're both in our mid to late four, 30s. And so it's interesting to have been modeled one version of parents in, in a romantic relationship and to have lives that are completely different
0: than that. Wild. And you mentioned the. I'm curious about, you know, if you could imagine traveling. Back and encountering that younger version of yourself, you know in this as you said this 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 congregation of reconciliation um with uh, uh, where where ministers were were performing marriages um, between gay couples you know well before the marriage equality act yeah um what would you want that younger version of yourself to know?
1: I think the first thing that comes up for me is is around belonging. Um, I think I've spent a lot of my life feeling on the outskirts and not really feeling a sense of belonging. That doesn't mean that I haven't done a ton of work on that and found that in my adult life, but I spent decades of my life wondering if I belonged, wondering if I fit in, and Um, In some ways, I can see the defense mechanism that I had as a child, which was to stay separate from Mm. that community rather than to actually receive and be within it because I was afraid of my own identity. And so therefore, I was afraid of that in other people as well. And so I think if I had that chance to go and sort of support that little boy again, it would be to help him feel a sense of belonging to sit within that and learn about his community and learn about people who are like him. Um, because the world isn't gonna, wasn't at that time providing a ton of models for what healthy gay men were. Um, and wasn't providing a lot of models for what um, gay relationships could be like, other than sort of what the political conversations of the day were about. And so I, I think the kids being raised these days, they're getting to see so many models in our media of LGBT folks in, being successful and being normal human beings. I think I wish I could have uh, felt that a little bit more while I was growing up in that church.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and when did you, like what told you at, at, at a young age, what told you you were quote unquote different? In, in a way that had you pursue that separation. Yeah, I think different is a good word to describe what I
1: felt at that time before I had language for who I was. Um, I can remember being on the kindergarten playground and and I have vivid memories, almost visceral in the body of recognizing that the other boys and the other kids were looking at me differently mm-hmm. than they were looking at the other boys. And I was found myself wanting to spend time with the girls um, and being in conversation and dialogue rather than in the rough and tumble play. And so I can remember pretty early on noticing other children, noticing that I was different. We didn't have language for it. We weren't saying gay or I wasn't being harassed in any way, but I could notice the differentiation and that scared me. Um, So it's, it's as early as kindergarten, five years old. Um, and it wasn't until I was getting closer to puberty that I started recognizing what it actually meant um, when I started finding myself attracted to boys. And um, I think it was confusing for a while because I could absolutely have crushes on girls. I could like enjoy them as human beings and and crush on them. And so I could play that game for a little while. But when it came down to like actual attraction, there was a completely different experience I was having that felt really scary and that felt like it separated me from all the boys around me that I really wanted to belong with.
0: Yeah. And, and how did you, how did you navigate? I mean, uh, adolescence is, is, is a difficult time for the most well-adjusted human being walking the face of the planet at any given moment. Uh, It's still hell to navigate, (laughs) you know, if we're being honest. Yeah. And, um, you know, how, how did you, as the, again, that younger version of yourself, how did you navigate your adolescent years? Uh, I leaned into
1: perfectionism. (laughs) If I'm being really honest, I think as a way of coping for the shame I felt internally, I leaned heavily into perfectionism. So Um, good grades became a really important thing. Um, getting the approval of teachers and adults in my life, like learning how to play in the adult space in terms of verbal skills and intellectual skills felt really important to me because I wasn't, didn't feel safe with my peers. And so I leaned into a level of perfectionism around everything that I was doing to try to cope with the shame I was feeling. As long as I could present that I was doing well, then I could just deal with my own struggles internally and not let anybody know that I was really struggling. So, um, my academics became really important. I was um, in music for most of my. I sang. I played piano. I was an obo perf- per, uh, obo player, and so I leaned heavily into my skill set there to continue getting approval and achievements in that area of life so that I could sort of mask the parts of me that weren't feeling so confident.
0: What would you, you know, if we hit pause here for a moment uh, and, t- and take an opportunity to to dish out some advice, if you will, what would you advise those who are, Hold in the direction of perfectionism, because it is there's such a seduction uh, to 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 go there for many. What 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 wisdom would you have to share with them?
1: Yeah, I think anywhere there is perfectionism, there is shame um, present mm-hmm. underneath it. I think that's a Brene Brown quote, quote or she sort of refers to that. Um, and it's been true in my life. And the thing that I really worked on that I think is something that I would try to give advice to or help advise somebody who's younger navigating. That is that perfection perfectionism is very externally referenced. It's trying to achieve belonging, acceptance, approval from those on the outside. Every single person in this world is going to need something a little bit different from you. And so trying to be perfect in everybody's eyes is an impossible task. And Mm -hmm. so, helping to turn that referencing internally and developing what you love about yourself, what you like about yourself, even being aware of what some of those skill sets are or those things that you like about yourself that you get to choose, not necessarily that someone asks of you or that you're trying to demonstrate to to um, get some approval, but really sort of drawing yourself inward to be, to becoming very internally referenced and
0: not so externally referenced. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for that. I I have a question for you based on an assumption and that is that, and the assumption is that at some point the, the, the structures, you know, the scaffolding that you'd erected to protect yourself, that at some point it, it, it came tumbling down, uh, that's a very good assumption, yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> you nailed
0: it, <laughs> yeah, there's something about those structures that always that always proves to be a house of cards, mm. and uh yeah, so walk us through the experience of that and also the the way you the way you met it, the way you recovered, regardless of how ugly or pretty it it may have been, mm, yeah. So it
1: was, it was a journey for me. I, in, at the age of 18, when I went to college, I actually started my first relationship with a man. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in a seven year relationship, about a seven year relationship with a man where we were both in the closet the entire time. Um, We were roommates and best friends to everybody else, but we were deeply in a relationship and really struggling with fear of our identity and what that meant. We were good with each other, but what it meant to the outside world felt really scary. Um, And that created some fairly significant codependent patterns within the relationship. When you can only rely on the other person to navigate any level of conflict or anything that's coming up in between your relationship or around your own fears, around your identity or the other person's identity in the relationship, it it became really insular and really codependent and really challenging. And so my scaffolding started to come down as that relationship was coming to an end when I recognized that that wasn't working. I did try afterwards dating a woman to try to see, well, I was like, well, that didn't work. I'm gonna try again dating a woman to see if that will work. It didn't, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think the the biggest point, um, it, it's sort of a confluence of different um, energies that that relationship was ending um, in some way, my mom was on to me more than I was uh, willing to admit that she was. And so we had started having conversations about my sexuality that I wasn't quite prepared for and that I wasn't ready for, that she was leading. Um, and then the third piece that was coming in was I was in my, the middle of my master's degree. I was doing a master's in social work with a child welfare specialization. At the time, I was an, in, an intern with an organization providing behavior coaching with kids Mm. And so I was assigned a case with a 16-year-old boy who who had already had several suicide attempts and was trying to kill himself because he was Mormon and gay and couldn't reconcile his two identities. Wow. First off, parentheses around this, like, that's not a case for an intern. That's not a case for behavior coaching. So there was some inappropriate levels of, like, how am I as a 22 23 year old and maybe a little older man supposed to like figure out how to help this person that's trying to kill themselves because of their child, because of the way they were raised doesn't match who they feel they are internally. Um, So there, that's one level of inappropriateness. Um, But I really hit this ethical dilemma within myself of if I can't even figure this out for myself, how am I going to help this kid? I wasn't at the place where I was suicidal But I was really struggling to even live in this world in an an authentic way. And so how am I going to help this person be able to do that if I can't figure that out for myself? And so I leaned into my social work code of ethics and I sought some um, advice from from an advisor. And I didn't feel quite as safe with my advisor in the field. And so I leaned into a professor at the university where I was getting my graduate degree and Little did I know she was, she was a lesbian as well. I mean, I think now I can be like, well, duh. But at that time, I was so wrapped up in my own stuff that I stepped into her office and said I just need someone to talk to. And it was the first time I had really opened up on my choice and in shared what was going on in my life. And got some assistance on how to navigate that, but then really had to start looking at my own journey from there. So... A couple of different things kind of pushed me right on out the closet. It didn't really feel like I was making that choice. Felt a little resentful that I wasn't making that choice. And yet I am grateful that it did. I'm I'm that type of person that I kind of wait as long as possible until life kicks me out of the nest. I'm trying to work on that, but I tend I to be say, risk yeah. adverse. <laughs> <laughs> but life keeps <laughs> kicking me out the nest. So I guess I got to work on that.
0: I do hope you're enjoying this conversation between myself and Travis stock. just a quick reminder if you have not yet, please do subscribe to mojo for the modern man on your favorite podcasting service. Let's get back into it so when so you were pushed out of the closet and 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 because at some point uh again, this is a question based on assumption you know at some point. You were pushed out without making the choice, you know, out of the closet now. And 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 when, having been pushed out, when was the choice actually made and what led to it?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that it was made in 2010, I believe was, was like right at the end of 2009, early 2010, somewhere in there. And I think it really, I had no choice once this um, case that I was given around behavior coaching with this young, young man who was trying to harm himself. I think at that point, I didn't really have an option anymore. It felt like too much pressure was building and it was escaping out of me rather than me actually being able to use my strategies to, to push it back down anymore. Yeah. And so that
0: escaping out of you, I think, I think a couple of illustrations might be useful here. Um, informative escaping out of you in what ways? Uh,
1: emotion, like significant amount of like emotions bursting out of me rather than being able to mute them in some ways. Um, cause we all know how useful it is muting them. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> being un- uncontrollably, um, in some ways, angry that I was that it felt like my choice was being taken away from me, yeah, but course. also in, but also like un, unstoppable amount of tears and grief around mm. all of the all that I had been holding down, um and anger that I thought I had found a relationship that was really that was going to be sustaining that sort of matched that model that my parents had demonstrated that meeting young and falling in love and it was the one and only relationship I was ever going to need and that crumbling down and and ultimately I was really struggling in all of that I was really depressed I was really um sad I was really just struggling and so there I i found myself in the office of a professor that i had met once for 10 minutes and sitting there telling my whole life story it's it didn't feel like choices were being made although i can see they were yeah it felt like i was being pulled into that and i was being pulled through that journey and from there i got to choose how and who i came out to and i started kind of slowly and built and built and built and then eventually enough people knew that I didn't have to be the one to come out all the time. Other people were doing it for me. And then eventually I, uh, it didn't feel so hard to do it.
0: Mm. And, and the relationships with mom and dad, how did they, it sounds like your mom was, was, uh, as you mentioned, was kind of onto you before you were really onto you and, and yeah, how did, how, how did that go?
1: Well, I think we both were on to me. I mean, I had been in a relationship with a man for quite a long time. So we both were on to me. I just wasn't ready to actually deal with that outside of myself and outside of that relationship. Um, And I think with my mom and I, we struggled for a little while, not because at all she has any challenges with me being gay in the world. I think we struggled because the conversations were moving faster than I was ready to go. And I felt I was resentful because it felt like uh, my choice was being taken away. Um, I trust her and know we've done a lot of healing work in our relationship to know that her intentions were really good and she was trying to help her son. Um, but it didn't play out the way that felt good to me in the moment. Um, so we we struggled for a couple of years and she had some of her own personal work to do that had nothing to do with me and my sexuality. And so my mom and I spent some years kind of in emotional conflict. We're very similar, we're very, we have the tendency to be kind of like emotionally enmeshed. And so I think we spent some years really working on what are our actual boundaries that set us up for success and set us up for um, a, a ways of honoring each other as individuals and as adult individuals now, not necessarily being the mother and son of when I was a child. We now have a different version of mother and son. Um and so we struggled for a bit. Um my dad was much more patient in the conversation. Once my mom had started talking about it with me, my dad, I I I felt this feeling in me that was like I can't have this conversation with one parent and not the other parent. Mm. And so I went to my dad immediately and said, "Here's what's happened. Here's what's going on between mom and I. She's not wrong." And I'm not willing to talk about it. And my dad respected that and allowed that to be what it was for a while. Um, I would say my dad and I more missed each other when I was a little kid. Like I've had different phases of life where I missed, I was missing, we were missing each other with one parent and then a little later with my mom. And so we've done, I've done work with my parents at different phases of my life. Um, And my dad was able to sort of, um respect the boundary and honor what i had asked for and i i gotta say i was really most afraid to talk to him about it and yeah he he showed up really well so and he's continued to show up really well so um i've been really lucky to have i mean they're the people that took me to that reconciling congregation that i grew up in so it's not like it was ever really an issue But some of the ways we conversed and some of the ways we talked about it and some of the boundaries that we had within our relational dynamic completely needed revamping. And it just happened to happen right around that same time and and became a little messy for a little while. And uh, I'm really proud of the work that we've done, though, because we are in such a good place at this point. Um, And so you know i I look back on it in gratitude and look back on it in in even though it was messy at times and felt very messy. I look back and feel so grateful and proud of who we are as in this phase of our lives
0: together as I listen to you one of the things that strikes me and I'm smiling over I know you can't see my face because of this ridiculous pop filter I have in front of it, but I'm, I'm, I'm grinning at, and with, with delight. And I, and I want (laughs) to say, I don't know where it's coming from, but a bit of, a bit of pride, if you will. Um, Not that any of your development and the work that your family did had anything to do with me. And there's something about the courage of not only you but the courage of the whole family system if you will to to do what was necessary the patience of your father the the clear boundaries that you were setting even if they were not necessarily well received the messiness of all of it but the courage travis in the entire family that is, is 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 nothing less, to me anyway, as an outside observer, is nothing less than stunning. Mm. Yeah, I,
1: I actually fully agree with you. I don't see that many people in the, in my work as a coach, in my experience as a social worker, I don't see that many families going on that drastic of a healing journey together and getting from one place to a completely new place in such a successful way. I don't know that many people in my life or my client's life who have gotten the kind of like come together, uh, expressing remorse and expressing love kind of moments that I've had with my parents. Um, And so I do feel really, I feel pride. (laughs) I feel really lucky (laughs) because it did take a lot of courage and it did, it was messy at times and it did take moments of us going, okay, Whatever you're working on is yours and whatever I'm working on is mine. Let's go do those things a little separately for a bit and then come back together and see where that brings us. And yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It is, it was a, it's been a stunning uh, change in our relationship that I couldn't have guessed. Yeah,
0: beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me and my guest, Travis Stock, here on Mojo for the Modern Man for Act One of our conversation. Come on back soon for Act Two, in which Travis will dig into separation and connection and the tendency to go in alone, the importance of asking for help and his journey, by the way, into the world of Equus coaching. It is good, good stuff. If you want to connect with Travis, you can do so through his website. That's Travis Stock, T-R-A-V-I-S-S-T-O-C-K, TravisStock.com. Quick appreciation for Josh Hines, my extraordinary sound engineer and editor, and also the guy who wrote and Uh, performs the music for Mojo for the Modern Man. And a quick reminder, if you have not yet, please do come by and visit my website, cirrusleadership.com. That's C-I-R-R-U-S leadership.com. Come on by, check out the classes I've got going on. There are two cohorts of my flagship program, The Integrated Adult Man, I Am, that begin in January of 2020. And now's a great time to... Grab early bird pricing as well as some cool bonuses and other good stuff. Also, every episode of Mojo for the Modern Man is on my website. You can catch it there. So with that, be well, make it a great day, and I look forward to seeing you back here on Mojo for the Modern Man soon.